welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. And as always, I'd like to thank uh, Wayne Bryan for the intro and Mike and Bob Bryan for the music. They're a talented music family, uh, in addition to their tennis. Uh, special thanks to all they do for tennis through the Bryan Bro Foundation and more. So thanks a lot. Hey, I tell my players that the tennis world is very small, and your friends are for a lifetime. It's like a brotherhood or a sorority. Um, that is one reason it's, it, it pays off to be a good sport. You never know who you're going to bump into, revisit, or maybe need a practice partner for tournaments on the tour, or even in the business world. Well, today I have the pleasure of reconnecting with a coaching colleague and friend I've not gotten to chat with in years, but have seen him uh, go from successful college coach to tour coach extraordinaire, and that's Brad Stein. Uh, we're going to chat about junior uh, college and pro tennis, parents of players, uh, coaching at various levels, uh, getting an inside look at the best. And if you want to improve, uh, you should model the best. So today's a great opportunity to listen and learn. Before I uh, bring Brad into the mix, let me share a brief bio um, with respect to his coaching. And then we'll get into some other things. But uh, he was a college coach for nine years as a, as a head coach at Fresno State University. He was the first to lead the Bulldogs to their first ever top 20 NCAA uh, Division I ranking. Uh, he garnered two Big West, uh, uh, Big West Conference Coach of the Year awards. And in 1991, then he moved on to full-time coaching with uh, Jim Courier. And before that, Brad uh, met Jim and other future world-class players as the assistant coach for the junior national team, or what was called then the uh, Davis Cup team, junior Davis Cup team. Uh, players like Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang, Malavai Washington, Todd Martin, Jonathan Stark, Jared Palmer, David Wheaton, Jeff Durango, all of whom reached the top 100. That is an amazing group of players back then. Um, so, yeah, it would be great that we're going to talk about that a little bit and where tennis is today. Uh, his pro coaching career was 17 years, or so, and he's still going. Uh, while coaching Jim, uh, Jim reached the number one ranking, won two French Open titles, two Australian Open titles, and reached the finals of four slam, all four slams. Uh, Brad has also coached top ten players like Andre Medvedev and top five Kevin Anderson, along with Taylor Dent, uh, who kind of was uh, – Grew up in Newport Beach, where I was down there. Uh, his brother played me for me for a little short while. Uh, uh, Grosjean Sarkeesian, who played at Arizona State, and Marty Fish, and Jonathan Stark, and Jared Palmer, who at Stanford, and then Byron Black from USC. And this, these players went on to do some great things on the Pro Tour, being number one uh, in the doubles rankings, and uh, Brad had a significant part in that. And currently, he coaches Tommy Paul since uh, the 2019 U.S. Open. Uh, and since then, he's won two challengers, made the top 100 for the first time in his career, uh, the semi of Adelaide, third round at the Australian Open with a five-set win over Dimitrov, uh, the quarters at Acapulco with a win over Zverev. So uh, inc incredible resume, impressive resume. And uh, from what I know, obviously I've known Brad for a long time, but uh, people just say he's the greatest guy, just a great coach. So welcome, Brad. Welcome to the show, and I appreciate you coming on. How are you doing in sunny, sunny? Uh, I guess it's kind of central Cal, right? Yeah, we're in central California. It's been really nice here, actually. I don't know, I don't know what's going on, but the, uh, the, weather's, <laughs> the weather's been quite mild. Normally we're, 
Normally we're already pretty hot, but uh, the forecast here is for no days in the 90s through the end of May, which is like crazy for us. That's nice. You don't roast on the tennis court. It's not 120 degrees on court. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, hey, Brad, um, what I want to do is uh, before we get into some juniors and discussion about college and the pros, um, I wanted to maybe have you, because uh, in the introduction I talked about your coaching, maybe tell uh, tell the listeners a little bit about your personal tennis journey as a junior and then through college. And, uh, you know, everybody has a different path, so maybe you could share what yours was. Yeah, my um, my resume includes 99.9% of my coaching because I wasn't really much of a player. So, uh, but, I, but I started late. I started playing when I was about 14 and a half. Uh, started playing my first junior events when I was 15. So I, I actually started playing competitively in junior tennis in the, in the boys' 16s was when I first started. Um, and I always remember my first year that I played like a full year of junior tournaments, I won one match. Back then, you know, there was no backdrop. Right. There was nothing, you know. And I'm I'm from Northern California originally, so you know, traveled all over. I grew up in the Bay Area. Traveled all over the Bay Area, playing tournaments. And I, I I won one match, and it was my grandmother was there to watch me play. That was the only time she ever saw me play, and I won that day. Should have brought her more often. <laughs> Wait, one um, mat one match in how long? That was like the first the first pretty much year that I played competitively, I really only won one tournament match. Yeah. I won, I won school matches, like other stuff like that, but like USTA sectional tennis, I really didn't win very much, you know? And, and by the second year I was playing in 16s, um, I had improved quite a bit and, and I started doing, you know, a fair amount better to the point where I rarely lost in first rounds. You know, I wasn't going deep and, and doing a ton, but, uh, but I, you know, I didn't. I didn't have like a, a super auspicious junior career by any means. Right. And um, and then when I finished high school, because I was really committed to wanting to get better and, and be a better tennis player, um, I I made a decision to to go to junior college, and I actually took a year off after high school so that I could play um, a lot of men's tournaments. So I played a lot of men's tournaments all over Northern California, tons of tournaments actually during that time. And, and I really, that helped me improve a lot. And then I, I made a big, big decision, enormous decision looking back to go to Kenyatta Junior College, which was rivals with Foothill Junior College right. in Northern California back then. You have to be, you have to be almost as old as us, Steve, to like <laughs> recognize and know what was going on in junior college tennis back in those days. And and those two schools, uh, Foothill and Kenyatta, were huge rivals in Northern California, but also just in California junior college tennis. And um, junior college tennis was much different back then because there were no limitations for schools on how many dates they could play. Right, so, you could play a lot of D1 schools, yeah. Yeah, so we got a chance to play a lot of D1 schools, and because we were based in the Bay Area, we were on the peninsula. You know, we played Stanford, we played Cal, we played San yeah. Jose State. We played a lot of really good schools, and um, you know my my JC team. I think it was the I can't remember if it was the first year or second year I was there. I think it was I think might have been my first year. We beat Cal. They played their entire lineup. They didn't pull a guy out of their lineup, and, and we beat them. They were ranked eight in the country in D one. Was that when Billy Wright was there? Yeah, Billy Wright was the coach there. He was not happy. Billy, <laughs> Billy, yeah, yeah, he was probably not very happy, you know. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, Billy. You know, Billy's passed away, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, last year, and, and uh, he was uh, he was an absolute legend. Yes. A friend of mine. I have a couple of good Billy Wright stories if we get into that. Yeah. I, I ran into him one time in a in an airport in Dallas. He was on his way to going to Florida for the Orange Bowl to do some recruiting, and uh, he was coaching at uh, Arizona now at that time. Right. I was on my way to Saddlebrook in Florida to go do off-season with, I was coaching Andre Medvedev at the time, who was top 10 in the world. And uh, we ran into each other in the airport, started talking, and, and Bill said, Bill, well, Bill, like, he took off for a few minutes, and he came back, and he said, well, I changed my flight, I'm coming to Saddlebrook. And I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, can I stay with you? He goes, you know, I go to these junior tournaments all the time, but I never see the pros train during uh, during off season. So I want to come do that. And I was like, "Yeah, sure, Bill, you can go." <laughs> <laughs> so That's... that was that was kind of crazy, but yeah. anyway. So I played I played two years two years at Kenyatta, and then I transferred to uh, Fresno State, and I played you know my my last two years of collegiate tennis at Fresno State, and um, we were a pretty mediocre team, to be honest with you. I went from playing five and six at Kenyatta to playing top two or three. I played one, two, and three at different times at, uh, at Fresno State. So, you know, my JC team was significantly better than my, than my uh, Division One team was, actually. But right. um, great experiences. You know, I mean, college tennis was an, an enormously positive thing for me. At Kenyatta, uh, the coach that was there was a guy named Rich Anderson, mm-hmm. who to this day I consider to be one of my – most significant mentors he was just an unbelievable technician at at, uh, teaching the game and I learned a lot uh, there and really improved a lot as a as a player and matured a lot as a player he's a very disciplined guy and and, um, also also took a lot of lessons that I learned from him and and uh, applied those when I got into collegiate coaching and, and got a chance to coach at the collegiate level. Well, great, because that's uh, actually that's uh, great, because we're going to be talking about that a little bit, like uh, you know, uh, uh, coaches that influence us. So uh, that's that's great. Hey, uh, backing up a few years, when you coach college tennis and seeing what you know, uh, would it uh, be great to get your thoughts on some junior and college tennis before we dive into the pros? Um, yeah. So you know about juniors. Uh, any advice to the eager Beaver junior and the parents out there aspiring to, uh, aspiring to play college and perhaps even professionally? For example, what are things they should be focusing on right now, or what do you think is a good amount of time to spend on court versus training, fitness, you know, foot speed, things like that, and maybe anything else you got on your well, on your I, mind? Well, I think you know obviously it depends on what age you're talking about. If you know, like kids that are kids that are very young. And uh, starting out in junior tennis, you know, in, in 10s, 12s, 14s, I think that at, at that point, the, the single biggest key is, is technical development. You know, I mean, you need to have good stroke mechanics. And, and you, if you can develop really good stroke mechanics early in the, in the process, um, that's going to take you a long way to start with, you know. And then the fitness aspects of what you do um, as a junior tennis player, I think, start to become more a function of what you're doing by the time you get to probably like 14s. And then, and then once you get, you know, into the 14s, 16s, 18s, then, then fitness becomes very important, and, and fitness should be something that everyone embraces, you know. And I, I think that for me, over my years of being involved in the game, the, the aspect of fitness that is generally the most overlooked by junior players is actually strength training. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that the, the single biggest shock to the system that most juniors get when they go from junior tennis to collegiate tennis is uh, how much strength training they start doing once right. they're in college tennis. 
And, um, you know, my, my suggestion to younger players is to start hitting the weight room, you know, earlier. You, you get a ton of, you get a ton of movement just from being on court and playing, you know, I mean, that, that's obviously you can supplement that and you want to do that depending on what your personal and individual strengths and weaknesses are from a fitness standpoint. But I, I just don't see very many junior athletes that I would say are really uh, maximizing their capability and, and getting in the gym to, right. uh, to lift and get stronger, you know, and one of the things I always mention is that if you're a freshman in high school and you're going out for freshman football, you're generally 14 years old as freshmen. And one of the first things they do is start sending you to the weight room every single day. So I feel like in tennis, we have this mentality that going to the gym and lifting is going to, going to have a negative effect on your ability to like, you know, create stroke mechanics and play the game and stuff like that. And to me, it's exactly the opposite. Right. No, I, I agree 100%. That's great stuff. Uh, you know, the, cause you see a lot of the kids, you know, I tell people, uh, you know, it's, hey, they're worried about, you know, the winning and this and the ranking. No, man, d develop your strokes, uh, you know, develop an all-court game that can attack. Um, and then as you get stronger, you know, uh, a little older, you can start uh, – because you don't want to do it too young. A lot of parents ask about that. You know, the body's not ready for it. But as you get older, uh, yeah, hit, start hitting the weight room. And uh, um, that's great. That's great. Um, what uh, – in terms of tournament play, you know, you see a lot of parents out there um, or even their coaches, and they're saying, hey, you know, this – um, you know, with UTR now, there's, you can get some more equivalent play in some of the systems, but um, it varies from area to area. You know, some places don't have a lot of tournaments. But my question is this. What advice do you have regarding playing ITFs, playing local or national tournaments, playing up, you know, that sort of thing? You know, because a lot of players say, hey, man, I'm, I want to play up. And, um, yeah, it's, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question and an appropriate question right now because I just had this conversation with a, one of the national coaches called me. I have a young man here in – Fresno that I work with who's uh, Ethan Quinn he's been ranked uh, he's been at one point ranked number one in the country in boys 16s I think he's like number two or three right now or uh, yeah I think I saw him at nationals yeah yeah very good player very good player very talented player you know and, and um, you know the USTA is interested in him a little bit and stuff and they were asking me that you know one of the national coaches called the other day and, and was asking me about his schedule and what he's looking at doing you know and and um one of the things, the single most important thing I said, I think, you know, in my belief is that that it, the most important thing you can do as a player is continue to look for and find appropriate competition, a level of competition that continues to push you. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, this is actually I'm stealing from your uh, from your intro guy, Wayne, Brian, who's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I've, I've known Wayne and the, and the, the twins forever. You know, and Wayne was a guy who said to me a million years ago, and this is something that's always stuck in my mind, and uh -huh. I, think it's a really, I think it's a really good thing to work on from a junior standpoint, is that you should be should be trying to create a schedule where you're winning 60% of the time and losing about 40% of the time. You, you want to you wanna get that positive reinforcement, you know, and you don't want to go to tournaments and play up too much or, or play out of your, your competitive level too much where you're getting beat all the time. It just becomes you know, too draining on you mentally and emotionally. Right. And, uh, and at the same time, you don't want to be winning all the time. You want to be, you want to be pushed to the point where, you know, you're recognizing things that, that aren't being successful or that you can do better, whether that means playing, you know, up in the juniors or playing adult tournaments or whatever that might be. Um, you know, it's, it's about finding that appropriate level of competition that keeps you in that 
basic 60-40 range if you can do that with, with your schedule. So whether that means that you're playing, you know, your own age level or age level up or whether you're playing ITFs or whether you're playing futures, Ethan, Ethan Quinn's now gotten a chance to play one future and, um, and he was actually right before, you know, the whole shutdown happened, he had a wild card into another future and was going to start expanding and playing a few more of those and seeing where he was at. But at the same time, he's, you know, like we're looking forward to the summer and uh, hopefully if Kalamazoo happens, you know, I mean, he's going to play 16s at Kalamazoo. Right. So, you know, he's, he's, uh, I think that's the appropriate thing for him. And it, it puts him in a completely different position where, you know, hopefully given his status that he would go there with the idea that he has a, a, a an actual chance to win the tournament in 16s. Right. Um, and and the, the pressure that that applies, I think is extremely important and for him to have to deal with that pressure and, and, uh, that's a whole nother education, you know, rather than playing up and putting yourself in a position where it's like, you know, you make third round and lose to a seated player and you can say, Oh, you know, I had a great tournament. I played really good. This guy's two years older than me. It's just kind of a, it's a little bit of a cop out in my opinion when, when people do that. Yeah, no, that's great. Yep. Uh, how does a player know, um, you know, I, I think uh, you'd agree there's no like cookie cutter path, you know, everybody's different, you know, uh, you're 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 different than a lot of people. How you got to where you are, and and uh, Alex Waski is different than other people. So, uh, how does a player know they're on the right path to becoming a professional if they want to do that, or even going to college? You know. Well, I think that I mean I totally agree with you, hundred percent, hundred percent that everybody's path is different. You know, there's there's no there's no like specific road to follow. <clears throat> there are certain standards, and I think that's the thing that you know if you we're lucky in our sport that there's not a lot of um, subjectivity when it comes to your results. So the results generally don't lie. And, um, and if your, if your results aren't showing that you, uh, you're beating guys at the next level and the next level and the next level um, to continue to move up or to play futures or to have a chance, you know, to do that, then, then, you have to read that those signs and you have to step back again to a position where I think it goes back again to that 60, 40, you know, uh, formula and try and create that for yourself. And if that means you have to take a step back, that happens even at the pro level, you know, it makes me think about it. When, when I was working for the USDA, I, I coached Mackenzie McDonald when he first came out of, uh, out yes. of UCLA. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and, and when Mackenzie, when Mackie first came out, you know, he struggled, he struggled right. for the first number of months that he was out on the tour and, and he was just not winning matches, just not winning matches at all. And um, I think he had taken like about his fourth or fifth or fifth or sixth first round loss in a row. And we were in um, Cary, North Carolina at a, uh, at a challenger. And we started talking a little bit and I made a decision and we pulled him out of the next two weeks of challengers and came back to California. And he asked for a wild card and got a wild card into the, uh, into uh, a future that was held at the uh, racket club of Irvine down in SoCal. Yeah. And um, he ended up winning singles and doubles. And and from that point on, started winning more matches in the challengers and everything just kind of like took off from that position, you know. And it's like, I said this forever, there's no there's no substitute for winning. You know, winning is, winning feels good, you know. And, and people, people say the old saying, you know, that you learn more from losing than you do from winning. That's true in some cases, <laughs> but again, yeah. you know, it's, I think from a coaching standpoint, I feel like, you know, if a guy plays poorly and does things not particularly well but he wins then from my standpoint i can be a lot harder on him than i can if he you know if he loses 
you, you, you got right. to consider the emotional toll, you know, that the, most players are pretty hard on themselves in the first place once they've lost, you know, but if, but if they win, you can actually kind of, you can kind of jump on them a little bit sometimes. Right. No, I agree 100%. I, I uh, tell people, you know, because I'll bring it up, I'll say, you know, some people say, hey, uh, you learn from your, it's, you know, it's really important to learn from your losses. And I said, forget that, man. I'd rather win and then we can talk about it, you know, because yeah. you can always yeah. you can always improve something, you know, even because if you're if you want to get better, that's all about the process. Well, I, I'm way happier to do something if I've won, man. I'm going to go out there and, you know, work on something. So um, yeah, for the, sure. the other thing related to that, though, is I know some kids, you know, they feel like, hey, you know, let's say they're right there and they're winning, you know, they're, they're 60, 40 up, you know, they're winning and they're playing maybe two age divisions and they're still winning in both. They win in theirs, you know, they win tournaments and they're one and they're still winning matches in the other one. Um, and, you know, I think this is really important when you said about, uh, you know, if, if, if the results aren't there, I think the res- what you define as results, because I think some kids, for example, I mean, I call it junioritis. You're in college or even in the juniors, but particularly in college, I remember this a lot. Like when I had my team at Irvine, we were 16 in the country. I had guys on the team that, they beat kids in the juniors constantly. Now those kids are in college, and the guys lose to them. And they're saying, man, how's that possible? I said, because, one, they grew up. When you beat them, you were six foot, and they were like four foot two, you know. And all of a sudden, they're, they're a player now, and they develop. Everybody develops physically and mentally and emotionally at different rates, you know. And so you could have this really nice game. And you kind of hit a wall. And some people go, well, I'm not winning. Well, you know, you have the right game. Maybe you're going to get stronger. You're going to change two years from now. Just hang in there. And I think some kids, you know, get kind of frustrated with, hey, it's not working right now. Well, you know what? You haven't even reached your peak physically or emotionally, et cetera. And then all of a sudden people just take off. And, you know, I think when you said about taking a step back, I think it doesn't even have to be a tournament level. It could just be, you know what? Don't focus on the results so much. Focus more on the process. And if you're doing the right things, it'll kick in. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, I think that there's a there's there's so many that um, you know junior success, whether it be over particular players that you see later on. I mean, everyone's every single player out there that's a serious player continuing to try and develop in their in their game whether it be physically mentally emotionally whatever whatever areas that they can get better at you know they're ha- they, if they're involved with coaches they've gone to college those those college coaches are going to be addressing some of those issues they may change their game style they may change some of the the identity that they were as a player from uh-huh. when they were in juniors so all of a sudden you get guys that you know I mean, I, I, I look back, and you might be the same when you were coaching in college tennis at the, the various schools that you coached at. But when I was at Fresno State, you know, I mean, when we first started coaching there, I mean, we weren't getting – we when I was there, we never got any real, like, top blue-chip uh, players. We, we got guys that were kind of second-tier, you know. And mm-hmm. my, my objective was to find guys that were competitive as hell and, um, and had good attitudes and mechanics that I felt like I could work with and help develop. And, right. We were the exact guys that you're talking about that all of a sudden my guys in college started beating guys that they had never beaten before, you know, guys that were ranked much higher than them in the juniors, you know, and and um, they just the guys developed. They got they got better in school. They got a little bit of confidence. They started believing in themselves as a team. And and that translates to more success, you know, and I think that that's something that you have to remember as a player. It's also it's also hard if you're that guy who was winning more and now you go to college and you're not being as successful. Right. Um, that's tough on you emotionally, you know, and you, you see guys fall into a pattern where 
they start to accept that they've kind of like fallen off and they're not as good, you know, and, and maybe they don't push as hard as they were when they were in the juniors because they start to get this realization that maybe they're not going to be quite as good as they thought they were going to be. Right, right. Well, hey, what I'd like to do, uh, just for the sake of time, because there's a couple college questions I'd like to ask, but, I, you know, given that your extensive background on the tour, I'd like to delve into that a little bit. And the first question I have is, if you could give a short version or a short maybe snippet of your philosophy of coaching, what would that be? Wow. <laughs> and if, um, if you need, you know, and for maybe, no, you know yeah, what, go ahead. You know what, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. Yeah. It's pretty simple. I think one of the things, I've been successful at and been, one of the reasons that I've been successful over the years is that I'm, I'm pretty simple in, in my approach to things. You know, um, I think that uh, over the years, I, I've developed a, a philosophy, a structure that that is based around trying to develop uh, great footwork that translates to great balance. Um, a big forehand, if that's if that's possible. That's one thing that, like with Tommy Paul, Tommy's Tommy's always been a much more backhand-oriented player. But since we started working together, he's he's become a much more forehand-oriented kind of guy. Okay. Forehand's forehand's much bigger and dangerous. Call it a fear uh, hand, baby. A fear hand. A fear hand, exactly. You'll you'll find you'll find that virtually every player I've ever coached. Um, either develops if they don't have one or improves upon the slice backhand and they become very adept at playing the slice backhand when it's appropriate to mm-hmm. use as, as defense or to transition forward when, when you need to. Um, I, I'm always, I take some pride in that. I think that, you know, like if you look at my time with Kevin Anderson, Kevin, Kevin developed, he had a slice backhand when I started with him, but he really wasn't using it very much. And right. If you look at his matches, especially in 2018, um, you know, look at the Wimbledon run when he went to the finals at, at Wimbledon. You know, he, he was he was using the slice so effectively on the grass, which is obviously right. a great shot on the grass. You know, yeah. um, so that's so that's a big deal. And then and then the other the other aspect that um, that I've always been really really big on um, is is return of serve. Uh, I'm a big believer in the fact that the return of serve is the the single most important shot in, in tennis. Um, everybody tends to serve pretty well. You know, they, almost everybody in the game, obviously you have guys that are, you know, great servers, but, right. but every, everybody serves pretty dang well. Um, the guys who are really, really, really successful, the, the best players at the very top of the game are phenomenal returners. And, they they don't all do it in the same way, you know. If you if you look at the top, you know the the big three, the big three, it's always it's a perfect balance if you can look at you know Roger, Rafa, and, and Novak, because they're very different types of returners. But but you look at their percentages of balls in play, and they're all just off the charts at how many balls they put in play, and right. particularly on, on big points. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, Roger, Roger as a one-handed backhand player, you know, uses the backhand slice a lot to, uh, to, to return. You know, Rafa returns from, uh, you know, in the next county. In, in the next, yeah. Different he's, zip uh, code. You know, you're in Washington. You know, Rafa's in Boise when he's returning. Right. And, uh, and Novak is much more like what I would say is probably more of a traditional type returner for these days. You know, right. kind of a little bit more of a neutral position, takes the ball a little bit earlier sometimes, but right. not that often, you know, but, but you look at the three of them and they just, they just find a way to put balls in play. And right. At the, at the pro level, 
I mean, at every level. I think that what one of the things I tell people all the time, whether it's juniors, collegiate players, you know, starting out pros or more or more, um, you know, veteran pros, is that as you step up in level, whether that be from 12s to 14s or 14s to 16s or 16s to 18s, whether you go from junior tennis to collegiate tennis, collegiate tennis to futures, futures to challengers, challengers to the tour. Um, if you go from number 90 to number 40 or from number 40 to number 20, the return, the quality of the return and the consistency of returning gets better and better and better and better as you move up. And I think it's the least practiced portion of the game, that, and, and yet it's the most important portion of the game. So, so I would I would I would surmise then that you would uh, you would buy into a lot of what Craig. I have a one of my podcasts with Craig O'Shaughnessy. We talk about you know people don't practice according to what wins, you know, and it's you know zero to four shots, and it's the return and the serve, et cetera. You know, people spend way too many time just grinding groundies, et cetera. Um, let me ask you a practical question because I agree one hundred percent. What do you do then on a daily basis? What do you focus on for the return? Let's just pick that. Um, you know, do you focus on, you know, the forward movement? Do you focus on the hips and the hands out front? What do you What do you focus on? Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you ask that because all that being said, that I just said, I find the <laughs> I find the return the most difficult thing to try and structure stuff around. Okay. You know? um, a little bit of it's an innate feeling. You know, obviously you can improve upon those things. But I think also it's it's um, it's a matter of looking at each individual player okay. and, and make, making adjustments as to what they do. Most guys with two-handers return pretty dang well off the two-hander side. Um, at the tour level, there's a lot of guys that return better off the backhand than yep. there are on the forehand side. I think that's true even at the collegiate and probably junior level nowadays. Yes. You know, with the uh, with the number of two-handed players that there are. Um, one of the things that, that Tommy Paul does, I'm not giving any secrets away here, but uh, <laughs> Tommy, has a, Tommy has a phenomenal block forehand return. So he kind of looks for his backhand, and if the guy serves to his backhand, he's going to be aggressive and like drive through and hit that ball off that side. Right. But, but if the guy goes to the forehand a lot of the time, especially on first serves, not so much on seconds, but on first serves, he's going to block off the forehand side. You know, And, and I think that... Um, that's actually something that's not utilized enough in junior or collegiate tennis. I think everyone looks to try and hit off of both sides. Right. And, and um, you know, as you as you face bigger and better servers, uh, it becomes difficult to be able to do that off of both sides. You know, they, they, if the guys can spread the box out or if they're bringing the ball in with some serious pace, uh, it's just it's just much harder to do that. So, yeah. and, I, and I'm a believer that, again, if you look at Roger again or if you look at Novak, um, Stan Wawrinka is a good example. Um, there's a lot of guys at the top of the game that actually do block from one side or the other. Roger hits the forehand and blocks the backhand because he uses the backhand slice. Right. Vavrenka um, hits the backhand and, and blocks the forehand. Uh, Novak blocks the forehand way more than people recognize a lot of time when you watch him play. If you actually like look through his matches, you'll you'll recognize that he actually he blocks the forehand a fair amount. Actually. Yeah, it's not much of a swing, yeah. And so, you look at Andre, I mean, one of the greatest returners, and Jimmy Connors, I mean, those guys took pretty short cuts. Yeah, I mean, those, uh, the, I mean, those guys were more um, impressive in how compact they were in their swings. Right. Um, Jim Courier was the same way, you know, but, but I think that, I, you know, I'm talking about more of an actual, like, um, chip. block on, yeah. on the forehand side, like a chip. Chip, yeah. Like yeah. 
like a chipped forehand yep. more than like like just a compact swing. Gotcha. You know, right. Like, so so yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think that that's something that's not it's under very underutilized in my opinion in the um, in the junior ranks. That's that's good. Uh, that's confirm because I spent a lot of time because uh, I want I want people to be able to chip a return. The same thing as you know chip and charge or chip and get in a transition game. You know, I even when uh, some of my juniors were, you know, if they playing against big servers, they're just, you know, bigger than they are uh, or they're playing because you know, they are winning at a certain level and you want to play up and you want to play some adults and some opens and things like that. You, and they got big serves. You got to be able to get a, get in play, just chip the sucker in. And then now you can start swinging, you know. Yeah. So, well, um, let me the the next question I have is kind of related to what you mentioned already about uh, regarding uh, Rich Andrews is um, is. Coaches of influence. On TV, we see coaches like Simona Halep's uh, coach, Darren Cahill. I mean, he's just a great guy. And I, you know, uh, Varev's dad and coach, or some of the coaches, you know, some coaches coach multiple people at the same time. Um, you know, having been a college coach for some 30 years and gleaning from around those coaches, you know, like Duke Gould and Diaz and Farood and uh, Billy Martin, all those guys. I'm curious, what things might you share that you've learned and has shaped from uh, that? You know, you've been shaped by other coaches on the tour, but you you even mentioned your JC coach, how he, you know, uh, and I, I'm sure uh, Alan Fox and Tom Shivington shaped uh, Brad Gilbert, you know. So w- what are things that uh, you've really come across and some of these coaches that have really influenced you and, and, and what might be those, you know, nuggets? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I think that everybody, you know, whether you're a player or a coach, I've been, I've been extremely, extremely lucky in, in the course of my, uh, experience through, through tennis, you know, coaching to really have had a number of different significant mentors that, that I learned a variety of different things from. And, um, I think one of the things we have to do both as players and as coaches is make sure that we're, we're constantly open to learning new things listening to people and different opinions sometimes even if you don't agree because right. you you may you know if someone has a uh, an opinion that's counter to yours on footwork or other things you know you, you you don't you don't need to just like pass that up out of hand you, if you can have a discussion i think that you know if you can create dialogue and talk about those things and maybe you come to some kind of an agreement and you actually find some points within what they're doing that makes sense to you that you may translate to what you're doing in coaching. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's one thing that, that I've constantly tried to do is, is to remain open and, and listen to people and, and get better. I think that's the, the period of time that I spent at the USTA as a national coach from 2014 until I started with Kevin Anderson and in, in, at the end of 2017 um, you know, I felt like I got, I got to be a better coach actually, because I was, we were around coaches all the time. You know, there was constant discussion of what was going on and mm-hmm. about technique or tactics or anything like that, you know, but for me personally, individually, as a, from my standpoint, coaching, you know, I, I mentioned Rich Anderson, Rich Anderson was my, my junior college coach. He was a phenomenal guy with mechanics and technique. And then I was super lucky, uh, right after that, that I, I was involved with, uh, with, Greg Patton and um, you know Greg I really learned from Greg in a very short period of time because he was the captain or the head of the Junior Davis Cup program which was the your national team at that time and the one thing that I really learned uh, glommed onto from Greg right away was the fact that he just held guys to an extremely high standard 
with their attitude and their effort. That was the, those for him. Those were absolute non-negotiables. You could you could play poorly, you could lose matches, you could do a lot of other things. But if your attitude was off or your effort was off, normally if your attitude's off, sometimes that affects your effort. So so for with him, I I felt like I I really those became for me non-negotiables was was dealing with attitude and effort you know and guys and especially when i was a collegiate coach a little bit different in the pros sometimes but um but in dealing with juniors and dealing with with college players i think that those are those are absolutes um and then i got to spend an entire summer and became really really close friends with tom gullickson tom gullickson really helped me recognize a lot of the the tactical aspects of what happened in pro tennis um, at that time, I was working. I was working part time for the USDA, and he and I were coaching what back then was called the Rookie Pro Team, and um, and we had a lot of guys that ended up becoming a lot of those guys that you mentioned earlier that be, that ended up becoming um, pro players, you know, top 100 players. And yeah. we got a chance to be around those guys, and I got a chance to just sit with Tom and watch match after match after match. Tom and I actually we did 14 weeks in a row through one summer from the start of the summer through the end of the U.S. Open. Wow. And uh, I, I was, that was the heaviest I've ever been at the end of a summer because Gully, <laughs> Gully likes to drink his beer. We, we hit a lot of balls, but you we also be, drank a lot of you, beer. I mean, you don't eat my, – my players that always say we'd be traveling, they, they always knew what I was going to order when I go to a restaurant, man. It was a chicken salad. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't stick to the chicken salad, Brad. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then, and then you know, I, I, I got to start – you know, when I started coaching Jim Courier – I got to be involved with uh, Jose Higueras and Jose Higueras, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I think a lot of people would consider Jose to be one of the, one of the, if not the greatest minds in tennis today. You know I mean? He, he's sought out and, and players reach out to him all the time. I mean, he's had, he's had dealings with Federer. He's had dealings with, uh, with Rafa, with, you know, so many different top players. And obviously back in the nineties working with Jim, he worked with Michael Chang and got Michael Chang to win the French open at 17 years old. You know, it was like, so being around Jose and Jose again took me back um, because he Jose's just absolutely phenomenal with footwork and and so you combine all those guys together and it really gave me a foundation for for what I do as a coach and and um, being able to translate that information to to players and, and help them to gain knowledge and, and recognize things that they can do within their games to become better is, is what we all want to do as coaches. And, and those guys just gave me such an amazing base to be able to work from with, with their backgrounds. And I still communicate with all those guys. You know, if I have questions, um, I, I call Gully or text Gully all the time about, like, uh, game plans to play, like, guys and stuff that, that he might know and stuff. He's one of the best in my mind about, like, uh, having game plans for guys and stuff. So... And uh, Greg Patton and I are still really good buddies. He was actually the best man at my wedding, so oh nice. We're uh, we're super tight. Yeah. So, as you said at the start, there are relationships that last forever. Jose Higueras is my daughter's godfather. Oh wow! There you go. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I uh, boy, I, we could go on forever talking about uh, the 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 networking and just the friendships in tennis. You know, I mean, as as you know, I was I've known Greg for many years, and then the late great uh, great Vic Braden and uh, uh, Jack Kramer, all those guys. Just man, there's just so many great uh, 
people in this game. Hey, I wanted to ask you now, because one of the things that uh, definitely happens in the game is change. And I was recently watching um, Connors versus Harhus because uh, actually I was looking at, I was trying to think, okay, what was the player that had a really shaky serve back in the day? I mean, it was really obvious. It's kind of like Gulbis's forehand, you know. Uh, it was just really kind of off. And, and, and I think it was uh, 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 Shelton. I know who you're thinking of, Shang yeah, Shelkin. Yeah, it was Shang Shelkin, exactly. That's what I was going to get to. And so I was looking at it, but I watched Harhus, and, and, and it was interesting because even then, that was 1991, the commentators were saying, boy, you know, the uh, the equipment's changed quite a bit, and the, even the size of the players, you know, because uh, Harhus was, you know, a pretty <laughs> tall guy. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, that was uh, 29 years ago. And uh, so I'm thinking, uh, you know, how much, you know, since you've coached Courier till now, what are some of the things that have changed in your mindset that people could glean from? You know, I'm always talking to people about their strings and, you know, the different polys and the spins and the power and, you know, but obviously there's a technical issue, but some of the equipment makes a big difference. So, uh, but what about the game in general? Are there any things that you think that have really changed since you coach started coaching Courier till now? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you, you know, it's a lot of people will talk about it. Obviously, Equipment's changed a lot. Racket technology and string technology have changed enormously, and and they've they've affected uh, in an enormous way how the game is played. You know, obviously, if you go back to the early '90s and even through the mid and late '90s, you know, Jim Jim beat Edberg in his two Australian Open finals that he won, and he beat Edberg in the semis of Wimbledon. And, and Edberg was, you know, he was a classic serving volley player. How many guys do you see nowadays that are classic serving volley players? You know, it's, there's there's not very many. Um, and and I, I think a big part of that is just the function of the racket materials and the strings. You know, you, the fact is that when you're on the dead run and stretched out, um, you can make a swing and you can still do a lot with the ball nowadays. It, it was a lot tougher back in the old days when Jim and Pete and those guys were playing with the Wilson Pro Staff that was 85 square inches. <laughs> And Jim was and Jim was stringing them at like uh, 70, seventy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so it was like it was, the ball was literally coming off a two by four. Most and, people uh, listening do not understand what he's saying. I I, I carry him around in my bag sometimes. Have juniors <laughs> yeah. try and hit with yeah, an eighty-five gotta, square. Most people don't understand. So you know, go out there and grab a wooden racket, string it at you know seventy pounds, and you'll you'll understand. It's um, it, so so yeah, those things those things have changed a lot, and and um, and the fact that you know people talk. I go back to what I was saying before. People talk a lot about, you know, how big serving is in the game now and everything. But um, I think the thing that changed the most, again, has been the return. Because it's the same thing. You know, if, I, if you're stretched out, lunging for a ball, can barely put a racket on the ball, you still get a lot of play out of your racket and your strings nowadays. And um, and so it, it's it's easier to put a ball back in the court from those positions than it, than it was back in the old days. So, so all of those things have changed. I think that's one of the reasons that we see um, a little bit less attacking tennis than we used to because the passers just have a, a bigger advantage, you know. And, and I, I think that that's translated also to the doubles game, both juniors, co uh, collegiately, pros. You know, obviously it's become much more of a norm to see guys serve and stay back now and um, or return and stay back. I mean, in the old days, in the 90s, I'm sure when you were coaching back at – UC Davis or Irvine, you know, if, if you had a guy that didn't serve in volley or get into the net as quick as he possibly could in a doubles point, you were probably irritated with him. Um, <laughs> I was. I was back Still am. <laughs> you know, but, but the, 
fact is, yeah. the fact is that the way these guys can crack ground strokes right. now with the racket technology, that right. it's less of an advantage to be up at the net. And I, I think that, you know, again, if we go back to your, you know, your music intro that's done by the Bryan brothers, um, you know, you even even Bob and Mike will will stay back sometimes now. They, they don't stay back as much as a lot of the other guys do, but they still stay back sometimes and exchange ground strokes. And, you know, they, the, the, I think looking at how that's changed in doubles is just a, it's a microcosm of how things have changed in singles that you just it's not as big an advantage to come in anymore as it used to be. Um, especially if you go way back in the game, you're talking about Connors and Harvest and those guys. I mean, those guys came in a lot back in those days. Right. You know, in the in the old days, in the old days, the way you bluffed a point was to just you know chip and charge, come in on a ball and try and make the guy pass you. You know, if you were feeling tight, just right. get your get your butt to the net and put some pressure on the guy. At least now, now I feel like the uh, the way guys that was that was kind of a bailout back in those days our, our bailout was probably a good play in a lot of ways because you were at least coming forward but nowadays the the bailout play the drop a shot lot of, yes is the drop shot uh, absolutely guys just throw in a drop shot suck the other guy into the net if he doesn't do something with the ball you can rip the ball right at him i mean that's uh because guys just don't volley as well as they used to because the game has changed from that aspect guys just don't come in as much as they used to so they don't spend as much time working on their volleys Right, and I, I guess, and, and this is a discussion, uh, folks, and now, for example, I'll have with Brad, because to me it's like the reason why people aren't any good is because they don't go in, because of the philosophy that they don't need to, because their ground strokes are better because of the rackets. My point is, get your butt in the net, learn how to play the net and all the nuances, learn how to slice, learn how to be more accurate. In other words, I talk to a lot of people about your, you play enabling tennis. You allow people to pass you because your approach was crummy. You know, so if you get the thing in deep and you put pressure on them, you get them off the court, you know, incrementally and, you know, hitting through the sidelines instead of the baseline, you get them off the court, you have a better chance of getting in the net. You know, it's like Federer. He approaches 75% of his forehands or so with a forehand cross court through the side of the court. Guy's so far off the court, you know, Federer can just dink a volley to the other side half the time. So it's like uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's like they don't want to come in because they don't. Well, the the, the solution partly, and I totally agree with you, it's, it's tough to do, but is do it more. You know, learn how to do it more. Feel more comfortable getting in the net, you know. So, uh, you know, do you find that guys are uh, – I think I – think I, actually, there's, I think there's more one-handers coming back and guys are coming in the net a little bit more. I mean, even Rafa, you know, he went from being pure baseline in a different zip code. When he comes to net, he wins uh, most of the points because he's very selective. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think that's the key, being selective, being smart about when you're coming forward, making sure – it, it may take you a little bit longer to set the point up and, and come in. This is a discussion and or a, an argument, depending on how you want to put it, that, that I've had with Craig, with Craig O'Shaughnessy before. Because right. Craig, you know, Craig, from a purely stats standpoint, says that, you know, when guys come forward, they win. I think, they, I think his stat is something like 69% yeah, of the points or right. something like that. Exactly. You know, but, but I'm, like, I'm like, Craig, so are you suggesting that I should have all my players just hit a ball and just charge the net because they're going to win 69% of the time? Because that's not true. Right. you got to set what it up. True, what, what is true that, and I, I think Rafa that you mentioned is a perfect example, because Rafa, over the course of his time on the tour, has developed the ability to recognize when he should come forward, when he's done some damage, when he stretched the guy out in the court. And he's very explosive with his movement coming forward, and he's become an excellent volleyer. I mean, he executes so well once he gets up at the net. But he's but he's coming in on the on the right shot all the time. He's not bluffing his way into the net. The bluff 
come in nowadays just doesn't work the way it did in the old days. You got to make sure you actually set the point up, open the court, and then and then look to attack. And and trust me, I'm not advocating. I'm you know I'm saying that the the equipment's changed what we do in some ways, how we coach a little bit and stuff like that. I'm not personally an advocate of that. You know, you said it earlier, Steve, and I and I 100% agree with you that my goal in every single player that I coach is to develop an all-court player. Right. I want a guy that, that has no, he doesn't have any holes in his game. So, so if he's if he's in a situation where he needs to attack more because maybe he's not hitting ground strokes well that day, and or the opponent that he's playing is someone who struggles passing from one side or the other, then you want to be able to exploit those things and take advantage of those. You know, so. You need to be able to, to have the capability to do everything. Um, I think one of the things, you know, you obviously are involved with it more than I am, but you see it all the time is that at the junior level, uh, younger kids, especially in 12s and 14s, you know, I always say all the wrong things win at the, at the younger age group. So, you know, when you come to the net in the younger age groups, you, you hardly ever win the point. If the guy throws up a lob and yeah. you have to hit an overhead in the 12s, you're going to lose the point probably 80% of the time. Yeah, I say it sucks to be short. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But so, so they, they, get used to, they get used to doing that. And right. It's become, junior tennis especially, has become a very um, baseline-oriented, grind-fest kind of like tennis. And, and it's, it's a little bit one-dimensional. It's a little bit um, unimaginative. In, in how they're playing, and I think the responsibility for that falls primarily on coaches. Well, I know that's exactly it. And I, I train all my juniors uh, to be more uh, forward-minded, looking for those chances when you know two-hander takes off the you know the, their hand and they're looking for a slice. Man, you're moving forward at least minimally, anticipating a short ball so you can attack it. You know, Trevor Croneman, who uh, you know, uh, and for the people listening, he's on one of my other podcasts. He was top three in the world in doubles at one time. But uh, we were at nationals one time. Uh, this is the uh, college nationals. And we were sit, standing there back there watching all these players, and we looked at each other, and we said, you know, do you notice anything different? And he said, you know, no, everybody's the same. They just sit back 10 feet behind the baseline and hit these balls, you know. But fortunately, the players that do win are the ones who come forward, the ones who are attacking, the ones who have a fear hand, the ones who are looking to, you know, put pressure on opponents and, you know, by their position inside the court and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think you're right. It's, uh, you know, there are, you know, in terms of the coaching, get them to be more forward-minded. So, hey, I got a question. Um, When we talk about changing habits, because we mentioned about uh, Shane Shelkin was – even at the pro level, you know they have doubts, mental fragility. You know, changing habits is hard because you're in the middle of the uh, middle of the season. Maybe as a as a pro coach on the tour, um, you know, what do you do? What do you do? What's your timing? How do you get through to players to change? And uh, like, I'll give an example real quick. I tell people, look, they give it, they take a lesson, and we work on something. And then they go straight from that into competition, and then they come back and they're, oh man, it was you know tough. And I said, well, yeah, it's like you know you don't you don't change your golf swing and go play around right away. It's like brutal, you know. You have you need what I call friendly fire. You got to go from working on something to like putting it in a game situation with people that are okay if you screw up and you play the point again and you you try and you try and have your this new technique or ta- tactic you're working on kind of leak into your game. You just can't go from zero to 60 in you know in two seconds so but on the pro tour you don't have that luxury man they're playing all the time uh when you know how do you handle that as a coach out there how do you get people to change well i think that the 
first and foremost, you have to get you have to get buy-in from your players. Yeah. So what whatever it is, whatever it is that you're trying to get them to to make an adjustment in, whether it's technical or tactical or you know a mental a mental approach, uh, you know how they're how they're acting, how they're conducting themselves on the court, whatever it might be. First thing you have to do is get buy-in, and that means that that you have to make a presentation in a way to the player that's going to sell them on the fact that what it is that you're asking them to do is going to help them be a better player. And, and I think that you, you can't just demand that they, especially at the pro level, you know, when you're, you're dealing with pro athletes, you can't just demand that they make this change without any explanation as to what's going on. So, is that part of when they hire you? Let's say, for example, I'm, I, and I don't want to interrupt, but I, I, that, that's a key point to me is like when you're talking about working with uh, Kev, uh, Kevin or when you're talking about working with uh, Tommy, et cetera, is that part of the discussion like, hey, you know what, Brad, these are some of the things I need to do, and you might say, hey, these are some of the things I've seen in your game, and then you kind of agree – uh, to do that on the front, in other words, they give you permission to do X, Y, Z with them, and you give them permission to. So there's this kind of back, back and forth, and you know that going into that relationship. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, in general, that's going to be the case. You know, when I started with Kevin, like I didn't know Kevin at all, not not one bit. So we had a we exchanged a number of texts, and then we had a uh, we had a phone long phone conversation, and then I actually I was in Florida at that time, and. I, I actually came down to uh, Delray Beach where he trains, and I spent two days on court with him, um, you know, running practices and just having some discussions and talking about different things. So, so yeah, you you, base, you have a basic philosophical structure of what it is that you want to do. Maybe you talk about some specifics within their game. Um, it's kind of – it's interesting because it's a little bit of a game in a way. You don't want to give away everything that you have, you know, like right off the bat. Right. Um because you want them to hire you to be their coach. Right, or too much information you overload. It's like a fire hose, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, like with um, with Tommy, Tommy was a little bit different because I had a relationship with Tommy through the USTA that from the time that I was there. You know, I, I'd known Tommy since he was about 14 and a half, 15 years old. So, so I, I wasn't specifically working with him when I was at the USTA, but I was around him and saw him and, you know, talked to him. We, we, we knew each other relatively well. And then since he had been out on the tour and playing – you know, I'd seen him and, and we'd always had a good relationship. So um, I think with with Tommy, um, he he had a he had a sense of respect for me right away. So in sitting down and talking about specific things that we wanted to adjust and change in his game, he was he was very, very open, very open to those things, um, you know, and and. Um, so it, it just depends with the guys. But mm-hmm. I, like I said, I think the first thing the first thing is to get buy in. If you're if you don't have buy-in from the player, then you're basically just banging your head against the wall to start with. So so yeah. you, and sometimes it takes you a while to get buy-in. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't happen right away. You know, like you're talking about, maybe you may have had a discussion going into like starting to work together, but then you get into it and the, and the player is a little bit more stubborn or hard-headed than than what you realized or maybe what they realized. You know, and and they obviously they're at a level with the pro players that are at a level of success that's that's been pretty high to start with already already and they have certain things that they feel may be successful so maybe they don't want to make those adjustments and stuff you know as much but i think you just can't kind of keep plugging away you keep um you keep trying to show them um you know situations where what you're talking about whatever it may be um is is shown to be effective from other players um, you know, from top players, maybe video of other players, situations that occur, 
Um, but but once you get that buy-in, and that, that's one of my objectives as a coach is to ultimately get the player to feel like he's the one that's making the decision mm-hmm. about wanting to do what it is that you want him to do. I right. want him to feel like I want him to feel like he decided that he wanted to do it, even though it was my idea. Right. Does <laughs> <laughs> that make sense? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. So so in the end, once you once you have that buy-in, then then I think it's it's pretty easy to address the. Uh, the aspects that you that you want to try and adjust, you know, and and especially if it's technical or tactical things, those things are a little bit easier. The mental and emotional parts are those those take longer, I think. You know, those take those take actually. I think that's the more difficult aspect of it. The the technique and the tactics are. I mean, that's just going out and drilling and practicing and hitting balls and stuff, you know. And, and right. Like like you were saying, even from a pro standpoint. You know, if you if you then you get by and you work on this, you make some adjustments in what's going on, and now you go and you play matches. You know, if you see if you see progress in what it is that you're trying to do, uh, you know, you go from zero times doing something a particular way to seeing three times in a set. Like that's success, and you have to recognize that as a coach. You can't go out there and expect someone to do it every single time the way that you're asking right off the bat. Right. Yeah. And, and so I think then, again, maintaining that buy-in, you focus on those three that were the, the way that you want them to be. Well, you know, I, that's exactly it. And I think players need to cut themselves some slack that way. For example, I know, uh, I remember, well, you know, you know Chris Taunts. He had a two-hand ba- forehand when he played college. And we would work right. every morning on a one-hander. And because, you know, he's just get, he was getting pulled wide. And I was like, look, you know, you got to be able to have that one-hander when you need it. And I remember the match and I even had this even in recent years where, you know, trying to get players to come in on balls. And, then you know, they and it's probably they do it and they do it in a match. They don't. I go, man, you had a sitter. You could have come in. And they're like, yeah, I didn't feel comfortable. I said, well, let's do it, man. You got to get in. And then they do it, and it's like you have a party on the sideline, you know. So I remember when <laughs> when uh, yeah. Chris, when Chris, I remember when he hit a passer. I don't know if we were playing Pepperdine. I can't remember. But he hit this passer with his one-hander. And he looked at me, and he goes, God. he just, like, screamed. He was, like, so happy. And I was like, you're throwing a party because you get it in there, you know. So uh, it could be incremental. And that was actually one of the questions I had is uh, how do you measure change or provide it for your players? And you, get, you gave an example. Even It doesn't necessarily have to be objective, but it's they know you've been working on that in practice. And they hit the shot or whatever it is, or they took more time between points. Or, and then you guys talk about that after match. said, hey, you did, you did that in the first set. You didn't do it in the second, but you came back and did it in the third. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I think you keep highlighting the positive, you know, yeah. I mean, whether it's in practice or whether it's in matches. And like I said, if the guy does it just two or three times to start out with, and then, you know, if the next time down the road he does it three or four times or four or five times, you know, you're making progress. You're seeing that progress, you know. And uh, and it, and then at some point it's it takes a while for guys, especially if it's a technical change or something like that, even if it's a tactical change, it takes a while for guys to own that, you know, right. to really own something. And, and that, may, that may take – you know, a month, two months, three months, six months before something is like, and it's funny if you talk to players, we as coaches sometimes feel like we start seeing the player do it more often and we think they've got it. And then you actually talk to them and they say like, like, yeah, I know I'm doing it, but it just doesn't feel normal yet. It doesn't yeah. feel like it's, and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, oh, it's just happening. I'm not thinking about it anymore. Right. Yeah. So I, I it call takes it, time. it. Yeah. It takes time no matter what. It's like, sir, I call it surrogate confidence. Like, you may not have it, but I have it for you. But what really matters is whether they have it. You know, bottom line, for them to hit that approach in a certain way or to be able to, to chip the return, you know, if against a big server, you know, we know they can do it in practice. They know they can do it in practice. But when the pressure's on, yeah, not yet, you know. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, I got a quick question then, um, and this is more along the lines of, uh, you know, I, when when uh, Medvedev and I, I don't I don't think you were coaching him at the time. I, I don't know the timing, but you know, he's playing Nadal recently. You know, and and I don't know how many people are pulling. I was pulling for him. I was like, man, this you're playing out of your mind. You know, and he was going through all those issues at the tournament. Uh, and I, I was just pulling for him. And, and I remember all of a sudden, though, he, he starts throwing these drop shots in. Talk about bailouts, you know. And he was just throwing these drop shots in. I think he lost five to six points. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is going through his mind that he would go from doing what he was doing? It was, if it's not broken, don't fix it. You know, Nadal does his little bottles every, you know, in fact, I, uh, on my blog, I have a little video where he talks about it where he says, look, in practice, I don't do it. In a match, I do it. I adjust my bottles. If it's not broken, don't fix it. I'm not going to change it, you know? So I was curious, why did, do you know why Medvedev all of a sudden just went through all the drop shots and, uh, you know, kind of let the momentum slip? I mean, it's, I, I'm pretty good friends with, uh, with Danielle's coach. So it's interesting, like we chat sometimes. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's just, he's an interesting character. I, I, I don't have an explanation for, what goes on in that guy's mind sometimes yeah um but i mean unbelievable player obviously yeah. the, the success that he had last year was was unbelievable off the charts but yeah he, he just especially at that i think you're talking about the u.s open last year he, yeah he just went through uh he went through some crazy stuff during that tournament and everything you know somehow he somehow he, he got through and won six matches yeah but but um yeah the decision making i mean he he is He's a very, very, very bright, intelligent guy and a very bright, intelligent tennis player, I think. I think he's a, he's a bit of a chess master. Right. And, you know, if, if he starts throwing in drop shots like that, I'm, I'm sure there's something going on in his mind as to why he's doing it. It may or may not make sense to you or me. Right. <laughs> but, but I'm guessing that he probably has some kind of concept of, you know, what he's trying to do. Maybe he's just trying to get a break. Maybe he's just trying to get a breather and, you know, he's throwing some points away. He doesn't really care. Right. Right. Um, you know, I think that happens at the pro level more than we, than we see like it in juniors or in collegiate tennis. But, um, but yeah, I, otherwise I, I can't tell you. Yeah. I can't tell you. The, well, it's, it's right. It's one of the things I want people listening to understand that sometimes even at a very high level, people do things like, whoops, I don't know. I had a brain fart. I don't know what it was. Or, yeah. you know, or like uh, Nadal. I mean, one, I was just working with some people today, and I said, look, you know, Nadal's shot selection is off the charts. I mean, the guy hits, if he's pulled wide, he hits this, he does that. He's almost always in the right place. And he hits the right shot, and he just waits. It's like he's just like a boa constrictor waiting for you to inhale so he can squeeze you more, you know, and or exhale. So, um you know, and players are just like that. But one of the, one of the things uh, I wanted to maybe ask you about then, along those lines, is Kevin Anderson. What things specifically, if you can share, if you're if you're uh, able to share, is you know, because he went through some really big changes with you, and it was just the mental side, and like you said, the you know his ability to attack. Um, what kinds of things that maybe people listening can learn from or glean from that you actually did with Kevin that tactically or mentally or technically uh, improved? Because he's known to be a, just a really nice guy and a hard worker. Unbelievably hard worker. Yeah. Yeah, Kevin's, Kevin's uh, I mean, he's just extremely dedicated and committed to wanting to be the, the absolute best player that he can be. And he'll, he'll go to any lengths to try and make that happen, you know. And, and um, I think – there, there were a few technical things that we changed. There were some tactical things. I mean, I, I think that 
Kevin was a player who was extremely well schooled as a youngster. His dad was actually his coach when he was when he was a young kid in South Africa, and um, I mean he played very 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 high percentage tennis. Um, one of the things that I think we did that made a really big difference was kind of changing some of the patterns that he was playing and getting him to recognize that if he wanted to make the step to the next level and, and become a consistent top 10 player and try and get into the top five and do those kind of things that he actually needed to recognize that men's tennis um, at that level is based around taking risk at times and that the percentage tennis that he was playing was was it was good it was extremely good obviously he was you know a high level player already but it was very patterned and very readable. And I recognized that very early in 2018 when we first started. The very first slam we went to was the Australian Open. And he had a tough first-round draw there. He played played Kyle Edmund first round. Uh-huh. And at that time, Kyle was being coached by a very, very good coach, a guy that's been on tour for a long time that I'm good friends with named Fred Rosecrantz. He's a Swedish guy. And, um, and – Fred did his homework, and he obviously had recognized and knew the patterns that Kevin was playing in. And Kyle did an extremely good job in that match of exploiting those patterns. And it was like he knew where Kevin was going to hit the ball before Kevin did half the time. Right. And so one of the things that we did, you know, post-Australian Open was to come back and start working on some patterns of play that that broke down some of those, that, that predictability and was, and was a little bit, we created a little bit more offense in what he was doing in his tactics. And um, like you said, you know, and we were talking about before, getting some positive reinforcement from seeing things be successful. Um, the next tournament that Kevin played after the Australian Open was the New York Open, and he won the tournament. And, and so that was the first event where, because we had spent a number of weeks training and practicing and working on some of these aspects. And, mm-hmm. and um, he goes to the tournament, and he wins the tournament. Nice. So, so there was automatic, like instantaneous reinforcement that, like, this is the right path. This is a good way to be going. This is what we should be doing. So that those those were big factors. And um, I think the other thing is that that Kevin, he made he made a a greater commitment early on in our relationship also to um, doing a more consistent um, effort in doing his rituals on the court that he was supposed to be doing he was a little bit haphazard he has a series of rituals that he goes through on the court a mental process that he goes through before each point um he has a he has a mental coach that he works with a sports psychologist that he works with and um i think she was you know as we were talking about she was struggling a little bit with with buy-in from kevin with full buy-in from kevin and i went to a couple of sessions with him and um, you know, one of the things that sticks out in my mind is that at one point in one of the sessions, uh, she asked him what percentage of the time he was doing some of these rituals. And his answer was around 65% of the time. And she said, you know, that's just not enough. I mean, we need at least 90 to 95%. Um, and, and I raised my hand and said, can I ask a question? And she said, sure. And I, I asked Kevin, I said, Kevin, you know, do you feel that when you do these things, when you do these rituals that you're supposed to be doing, um, that you perform better as an athlete. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, then why the bleep would you do it? <laughs> Where's the disconnect? <laughs> wouldn't you, well, then why wouldn't you do it all the time? Why wouldn't you do it 100% of the time? 
I mean, if you if you if you believe that it helps you perform better as a as a high performance professional athlete, um, then why aren't you doing it? And so from that moment on, first of all, the sports psychologist became a big fan of mine. <laughs> and, and, and second of all, and second of all, we made a commitment within practice to start practicing these rituals more. Mm-hmm. So so we actually were doing things where. You know, before each exchange, even when you were just feeding out of the hand, you know, we would ask Kevin to go through his rituals and and start doing those. And then he would, you know, there'd be an exchange of X number of hits of balls or whatever. And then before the next exchange, we'd ask him to go through those rituals again. And it just became it just became much more of a habit for him. And he started producing it more regularly on the court. And it's it's something that I think helps him a lot. It helps keep keep him calm and, and, and keep him, you know, able to perform at his best level. And so I, I think those things were really enormous things that that uh, that really translated to a lot of his success. That's great stuff. Yeah, I and I think uh, I'm a big proponent of the mental side because uh, I think it's you know you know people say yeah it's really important but they don't do anything about it. I mean you, so your drills, the way you handle practice, everything should be you know either towards competition or. You know, what are you doing in terms of your, you know, your rituals or your between what I call between point management between uh, when you're practicing, you know, all those things. So that, that's uh, that's really good to hear that. Uh, got a question here regarding, um, you know, what kind at your level, you know, the pros, obviously they have, quote unquote, all day to do these things, whereas, you know, college students, we have to study or club players. They do, you know, they have work and juniors, they have school, et cetera, et cetera. But. What would be your advice, having done this for so long, in terms of how they maybe split, you know, the technical, the tactical, you know, point play, match play, you know, mental training, you know, I mean, obviously every, each player is different, but in general, uh, like you mentioned earlier, juniors, you know, work on your technical, get that going, and obviously, you know, have the right attitude, et cetera, and as you get older, maybe spend some more time in the weight room, et cetera. If you only have, let's say, three, four hours, three hours a day, let's say, to, to do serious training, what would you spend most time on, or how would you divvy that up? I mean, uh, if I had three hours, I'll, I'll tell you that, um, and I said this when I was at the USTA, you know, I was working with players at the USTA that were primarily outside the top 100, and um, they, they were guys that were extremely good players. You know, a lot of them inside the top 200, inside top 250, but not, not inside the top 100 yet. And one of the things that used to drive me crazy, and I feel like this with junior players, is that, you know, the single most important thing in in being a great tennis player is how you play tennis. And you become a better tennis player by playing more tennis. Get on the practice court, play tennis. So, you know, I talked earlier about about getting to the weight room and doing more weights. All those things are really important. There's no doubt that, you know, the second most important and significant thing after tennis is your fitness. You know, where, where are you at with your fitness level? But, but the single most important thing, and especially for young players, I think, is, is tennis. The more time that you spend on the court and the more time you spend competing, I think the better off you're going to be with your game. And I think one of the things that we've lost in this more modern era um, is that kids, junior players especially, even collegiate players to some degree, they, they, they don't just go out and play enough. In the old days, you know, when I was growing up and, and – pretty much everybody just got together with their friends or their buddies or somebody they knew and they they played sets they played sets all the time right you know i mean constantly constantly competing you know playing for something making a side bet doing something you know but but playing for something and and nowadays i feel that 
so many junior players that they only play tennis when something is organized for them. Um, you know, they, they come to their clinics, they come to their training groups, they, they do those kind of things, but they, they don't go and play as much on their own as I think uh, guys did in the, in the old days. Um, so for, for me, that's a, that's a big deal, just play more. And if, I had, if, I'm a, if I'm a player, you know, I'll give you a perfect example, um, like I talked about before, you know, Ethan Quinn, who lives here in Fresno, he goes to traditional school, so he goes to normal school. Um, so he has a, you know, he has a pretty limited window of time to, uh, to get on the court and practice and do the things that he needs to do, but he tries to really maximize. And that's one of the things that we've talked about is maximizing that time, you know, and I, and I, I ask guys all the time that when you're on the court, no matter what you're doing, whether you're drilling, you're hitting forehands, cross court, whatever it is you're doing from the moment you walk on the court and start hitting balls, you should be competing. And you're always competing. This is kind of it's kind of cliche and simple thing to say, but you're always competing with the most important person that you have to compete with. That's yourself. Yeah, exactly. Hold your, hold yourself to a standard. Once you start hitting balls on the court, demand from yourself a level of execution that's going to be extremely high. You know, I ask Ethan when we're hitting, you know, like how long can you go without missing a ball in the warm-up? <laughs> I love it. You know, this is I mean, what I- I mean, try and go, try yeah. and go four minutes, five yeah. minutes, six minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes without without missing a ball. You know, I mean, there's there's no reason why you shouldn't be having that happen, and and that should just carry over to everything else you do. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be at the same intensity level that Rafa is every time he hits a ball, right? Because you know Rafa wants to put a hole through everybody. And again, it's it's interesting. You know, I love. We're, we're so lucky in this time frame that we're in right now to have the big three because because they're so uniquely different in how they approach things and how they play their games and how they do stuff, and yet their levels of success have all been so phenomenally good. But you have, I think you have Rafa at the far end of intensity and commitment in what he does in hitting balls. You have Roger at the other end. Of, Roger's pretty loosey-goosey and relaxed a lot of the time when he's warming up or training or hitting balls, and Novak's somewhere in the middle. Novak's Novak's not quite as intense as Rafa. He's not quite as relaxed as Roger, you know. And again, some of those things are determined by your own personality, and we as coaches have to recognize those things. We can't demand that everybody be like Rafa, right? You know, and we certainly don't want everybody to be like take it to the other ultimate end of the extreme. You know, we don't want everybody to be like Nick Kyrgios. Kyrgios. <laughs> you know, <laughs> New Year gone there. Yeah, he plays like 45 minutes of, you know, mini tennis and, and then hits for like 10 minutes and that's his practice, you know, and, and somehow that works for him to some degree or another. So, but, you know, you have to find, you have to find what works for you at your optimum level, but holding yourself accountable and, and the standards that you create on the court uh, for your practice and your training are extremely important. And so I would say if you have a limited amount of time, spend it playing more tennis. That's the you know, work on the weaknesses in your game, develop and become an all-court player. You know, if you don't have a slice backhand, develop a slice backhand. If you're not a particularly good volleyer, become a better volleyer. I mean, do, do those things so that, especially right now in this time, you know, with the, with the craziness that we're in and having very limited amount of time that you can get on the court, you know, I mean, if you can come out of this time frame and be a better player than you were when the pandemic started and everything got shut down, I mean, I think you've done a pretty dang good job. Yeah. 
you know, uh, folks listening, there's multiple things he touched on here, and and I'll uh, if I don't mind, uh, I'll jump in a couple th- examples. You know, for example, he mentioned competing. You know, even here's an example for some coaches out there. One thing I do is like uh, when I we start warming up is exactly you don't miss. You know, you have to move your feet the whole time. You can't stop. You know, a lot of people play mini tennis up front, but then they don't move their feet. Well, move your feet more. But I'll say, okay, first pair to go to 20, first pair to do this, first pair to do that. And it's an, always a competition. And I give a story one time when I was at Irvine. I had, I had quite a few guys on the team that were top five in the country that were on the team uh, as juniors. And then a lot of them were ranked in the NCAA. And I was just tired of them missing. I said, guys, you know, you're just not focused. And so one day they came to practice and said, okay, look, the entire team has to go for five minutes without missing. And we kind of start at the baseline. Then one guy moves to the net, and then he moves back. The next guy comes to the net, he moves back. And we just go until we, you know, we, for five minutes. It took us 45 minutes for the guys to do that. And then after, <laughs> a couple of the guys were pretty incensed, you know, because somebody would miss and we have to start all over again. But after that, <laughs> they didn't miss much. And it was, you know, the whole idea that's like, look, yeah, just focus a little bit, you know. So I, I love it when you said about, you know, not missing in the warm-up. And the warm-up, you know, once you get on the court, you start and, and uh, be have high expectations for yourself. So that's, uh, that's some great stuff there. Hey, uh, Brad, um, what do you think about no-ad scoring in the, in the pros or not? You know, I mean, in college we play it, and, and uh, I personally, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had to play it when I was in college, and I don't, I don't like it, actually. Do you think it's going to take over the pro ranks? I hope not. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan, I'm not a fan, Steve, of, of uh, well, put it this way. Anytime, anytime you shorten the format. Amen. You, you increase <laughs> You increase the possibility for for upsets. Right. So so I mean the fact is that you know um, if you take one of your best juniors and you put him on the court and you said you know what you're going to play one point yep. against Novak. Yep. You have a shot. In a one point in a one point match, your kid has a decent chance of winning. Yep. If you play eleven points, he has zero chance of winning. Right. Exactly. So so no ad scoring just creates. Um, a shortening of the format that just adds that much more inconsistency in what you're doing, you know, and, th- and that's one of the reasons I'm actually a huge fan of three out of five. I love the three out of five set format. In, oh yeah. In, slam- in slams. Yeah. I, 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 I was very disappointed when they took it away in the Davis cup. Uh-huh. I, I'm, a, I'm actually a proponent of, I, um, you know, back in the good old days when men were men in the 1990s, um, you know, all the Masters 1000 events, the finals were three out of five set finals. Right. You know, and, and the fact is, when you lengthen the format like that, the likelihood is that the better player is going to win. Right. And I think that's actually good for the game. You know, having superstars like the like the big three and Murray when he was there and the other guys that have been, you know, at the top of the game. You know, having them be able to maintain that standard and be able to pull those matches out. You look at the, look at the match that Roger won over Tennis Sandgren at uh, the oh, Australian Open. It was crazy, last, yeah. Last January, you know, I mean, and that's why you play three out of five, you know. So so I, I love that format, and, and uh, I'm not a fan of, of the idea of shortening formats. I'm uh, with you 100% on that. And then what about, uh, this is something I really wish the world would do, and that's just playlets, man. Just like Division One. What do you think? Um, it just doesn't matter. I mean, half the time you return it and you get going. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a. I, I don't have enough of an opinion on that one, actually. I mean, again, it it generates a degree of luck that I don't necessarily like. Maybe it's. I, I am. 
I am in general a bit of a traditionalist when it comes to the game. I'm a little bit more hesitant to see too many types of changes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so for me, I would probably say I would prefer to see the let maintained that is as it is. It does drive me absolutely nuts, and it's one of the things that drives players nuts at the tour level when, you know, the electronic let calling system seems to <laughs> somehow phantomly call a let that no one thought was a let in the, ty- in the entire place. Or in the juniors when people call lets that don't exist and the ball's four yeah, feet above yeah, the net. That's, yeah, that's a, little, that's a little different. That's called cheating. Right, right. But it ha- that's my point. You get rid of those things. <laughs> yeah, so, hey, exactly. uh, give me your top five your top five characteristics of a champion. Top five characteristics of a champion. Wow. Let me see. Um, speed. That would be one. Um, these are going to be very general. Obviously, mental fortitude. I'm using the word fortitude because it makes me sound smarter. Okay. Um, I mean, I think from a tennis standpoint, uh, great timing and mechanics. So those those two things kind of work together. I mean, technical skills and timing are, are enormous within tennis. So that's three. Technical and timing – um, how can we, I would say like along with mental fortitude, this, I mean that those kind of translates to a, a, a sense of fearlessness and the, and the last one will go along that line. Look, I will have ended up having three mental ones. That's out of fine. Five. Yeah. That's, it's whatever uh, you're, but, but the, the last one is, I think is a, a lack of, um, I mean, maybe there's a way I can find it. I, I, mental fortitude is kind of this, but one of the things, one of the qualities that I think every top player, I've been lucky enough to coach five guys in the top 10 and Courier became number one in the world. And he was probably the greatest about this of anyone that I've ever been around, but um, they just aren't fragile mentally. They, they have an innate self-belief that carries them through um, despite the fact that they may not be playing very good tennis, uh, everything could be going wrong around them, and and they still just have this this sense that, you know, as things get tighter and tighter and tighter, I'm gonna find a way to make this work for myself, and I'll end up winning. And, it, and it's and, not an arrogance. Like, it's it's you're saying it's just this man. I'm just I refuse to lose. It's not an arrogance at all. Yeah, I, I would say it's I would say it's virtually the opposite because I don't find I don't find Rafa or Roger or those guys to be particularly arrogant. Right. Like I wouldn't use that word. Arrogant, I think, has a negative connotation to it. Right. I mean, I think what um, I'm saying is some people would say, oh, they you know they just have this you know this air about them. No, what you're saying is, man, it's just this this fight, this refuse to lose, this refuse to see the situation as negative. There's always a possibility to win. Yeah, just, just the sense that, I mean, I think that most tennis players, and again, if we talk about, you know, go back to the juniors, go back to collegiate, as you go down in levels or go up in levels, you see a much greater degree of fragility amongst players, junior players especially, obviously. You know, they can be playing the greatest tennis of their life, and in their mind, they're wondering when it's going to fall apart. Right. And as soon as they miss one ball, all of a sudden now they can't play at all. I can't hit a forehand. And <laughs> they just hit yeah. 50 winners before that, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And we see that, you know, that happens again, you know, more often in collegiate tennis than it does at the higher levels of pro tennis. It happens more often at, like, ITF futures level. The higher you get, the more 
stable the players are mentally hmm. with their with their belief in what they're capable of doing. And, yeah. and I think that I think that that's a learned process. It's a learned process. It's something that comes from having had success under pressure from a young age and recognizing in yourself that you have a capability of being able to find a way to win. And and I think that goes back to what we were talking about before about you know, when we're making technical changes or whatever, you know, and you were talking about process, process, process. Right. I mean, I think that's very true, but I also think that learning how to win is part of the process. Yeah. And even if, even if you have to find a way that, you know, however it might be, your job at that point is to find out, figure out a way to win that particular match. Then you can go back to the technical changes that you're trying to make in your game for the next match. You can do those things, you know, right. but, but Finding a way to win matches is a is an extremely important quality, and uh, and I think it's something that that in my experience being around you know the top guys in the game that they just all have they just all have that innate ability to to believe in themselves under the most pressure packed you know situation, and that doesn't I'm not necessarily even talking about you know finals of huge tournaments. Right. It's when they're it's when they're stressed and they're pressured by guys that you know. Uh, maybe aren't supposed to be in that situation in the early rounds in tournaments, but they they find a way to to continue to be successful in those situations. That's great stuff. I, I and uh, we'll be wrapping up here real quick. But Chuck Greasy used to say there's different levels of of the pecking order. You know, have people you're supposed to beat, and you got to learn how to play under that kind of pressure. You have people that are better than you, where you got to learn how to rise to the occasion. And there's people that are equal. You got to learn how to trust your training. So, like you're saying. The greats find a way regardless of the situation. They're going to say, man, this is pressure. i got to find a way. So that's that's really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So, hey, Brad, um, you know, it's, just, it's been amazing having you on, on the show, and I really appreciate you taking the time. And, and I just want to give you one last maybe something. If, if you have anything you might want to leave with our listeners today in terms of action steps going forward or maybe a website to go to or anything that you might want to just kind of uh, leave uh, on a, on a note with that before we kind of wrap it up, because uh, I know you got things to do, and man, I've really appreciated your time. Uh, no, it's been fun. I, I enjoy it. I, I, I'm uh, I don't mind talking about tennis. That's for sure. <laughs> um, as as far as you know, something to leave people with, I would go back to what we talked about before. You know, I mean, if if you're someone that's aspiring to be the best tennis player that you can possibly be, play more tennis. Find a way to get yourself on the court more. Compete more. You know, take responsibility for calling people up. Um, I, I think one of the greatest, one of the greatest uh, bits of advice that I ever got from from a, a coach was the guy that I originally took lessons from. The guy named John Reed in San Mateo, California, and he used to say to me, "Don't ever turn a match down from anybody. Doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. Doesn't matter. Somebody asks you to play, play." Play them a set, play them two sets, beat them as bad as you can, try and learn something from it, and then move on to the next person. And I think that's something that we lack a little bit nowadays, like I said, you know, is just kids going out and just, just playing, playing on their own. Playing, right. unsuper, playing unsupervised, I think, is important sometimes so that kids actually have the freedom to explore, have mm-hmm. some fun with what they're doing competing, but learning a little bit on their own about what they can do with their games. That's great. Compete unsupervised. That's great. And, like, who cares about the result? You know, you just get out there and compete, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, folks, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with ATP coach 
Brad Stein. Uh, be sure to like and share this and all my podcasts and blogs, um, podcasts on my website with your friends at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. Uh, there you'll find blogs, podcasts, videos, uh, and more. And special thanks to Collins Company, Court Equipment down there in Southern California, and uh, Aero Concrete and Asphalt Specialties up here in Spokane. Uh, I'd like your comments and questions. You can reach me at uh, Steve at CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. And I'd like to leave you with this thought um, before uh, Mike and Bob Bryan's music comes on. I say uh, at Stanford, when you walk through their halls, they have quite a few trophies, um, to say the least. Uh, well, they have a little sign up there on the wall that says, Champions give 100% once in a while. Most of the time, they give more. So champions give 100% once in a while. Most of the time, they give more. And just like what Brad was uh, kind of communicating this entire time, just this passion, this desire to get out there and give 100%, compete more, play more, um, that's just great advice. So as I say at the end of every show with uh, Brian uh, Brothers music coming up, I remind you just to let it rip. <laughs>